Now I invite you to stand as we uh, pay attention to the gospel lesson for the second Sunday in Lent in Luke's gospel, the 13th chapter, beginning with the 31st verse. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox for me, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finished my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Sometimes people say that the Bible is not relevant to modern urban life because it is so concerned with with uh, rural life of old. And certainly we, we, know there's, uh, we know the stories about sheep and camels. Uh, we know the stories of rivers and lakes and mountains. Uh, the truth is American Christianity sometimes is criticized for, for being better suited for the rural uh, life of the 19th century than for the 21st century uh, modern life. And, of course, we, we uh, have fond images and pictures and stories of beautiful little village churches. And we Methodist preachers love to tell stories occasionally about the, the circuit riders on horseback that, that went across the frontier. But cities are important in the Bible, and cities are certainly important in our faith. And today we're going to talk about three cities. The first of those is Babylon. And here we we, uh, hear Jeremiah's words that he read for us. Now let me tell you, you can search the, the Bible quite a bit and you won't find many nice things said about Babylon. No wonder. But here is Jeremiah speaking to the first exiles and saying to them, there, okay, there were, there were false prophets among them. It seems that false prophets are usually the ones who uh, seem to be bringing good news. And, and those false prophets were saying, don't worry about this. It's, it's only a temporary thing. Uh, God's going to come in and vanquish the Babylonians and you're going to get to go home. Jeremiah, still in Jerusalem, he wasn't considered important enough to be with that first batch of exiles that they took to Babylon. Jeremiah, writing for God, says to the exiles in Babylon, build houses, plant gardens. You're going to be there a while. And so, he says, you should seek the welfare, the well-being of your city. The word, I think, in Hebrew is shalom. We know that word. It's most often, uh, most commonly translated peace, but it is such a rich word 
many words uh, are needed to capture the full, uh, the full meaning. Not only is it the absence of conflict, which is what we usually mean when we speak of peace, but it's the presence of every life-giving force. Seek the well-being, the welfare, the good relations of, of your city. Now remember where this letter was addressed to. It was to Babylon. We know we're more familiar with the words from the psalmist, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And indeed, we still pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Our world would be a, a safer place in the 21st century if Jerusalem were fully at peace. We still pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and that was part of the ancient uh, prayer life of the people as well. But this word is addressed to seek the well-being of a different city, the city that had sent the army that had overrun Jerusalem. The, the, the life of, of the Jewish people as an independent monarchy had come to a crashing end in 522 BC as the Babylonian army had overwhelmed the city. They took off the most important of the citizens to, to, into exile, uh, leaving only those that didn't count for much, apparently Jeremiah uh, among them until the second conquest a few years later, but we won't go into that. There, but there, just to, to say there was further destruction imminent. Jerusalem was certainly surrounded by its enemies, and yet the prophet says, pray for the people who surround you. Pray for the city where you are and plan to live there. A few verses later, Jeremiah, speaking for God, would say, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare, to give you a future with hope. Beautiful words addressed. God has plans for the people. But now, he says, you must find in, in the city's well-being, your well-being. And that's still true today. I believe that we, overhearing Jeremiah's words to the uh, exiles in Babylon, can hear his message that we are to seek the well-being of our city. The second city we'll talk about is Jerusalem. In our lesson uh, for this second Sunday in Lent, Je Jesus mourns over Jerusalem. He's not there yet. He's on his way. He's still in the, under the, uh, 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 what is it, the, the domination of, of Herod. But, but he's on his way to Jerusalem because he says he's got to, he's got to go there. And he laments the, the, the history that Jerusalem has of killing the prophets. Later on in Palm Sunday, Luke tells us that, Jer that Jesus, uh, hearing the adulation of the crowd on Palm Sunday, wept over Jerusalem as he saw it laid out before him. Lamenting and wishing, oh, that only you knew the things that made for peace. Hear those words. Oh, that you knew the things that make for peace. Words that, that resonate today in every sense. The irony of Luke's writing is that by the time Luke wrote his gospel, there had been another destruction of Jerusalem, this one in AD 70, this one by the Roman armies. 
leaving only a small fraction of the city standing, including that western wall. Here was another destruction that Luke's readers would know about, would, would understand that Jesus was saying, Jerusalem, you really don't know the things that made for peace, and because of that, look what has, look what has overcome you. Now, Jesus knew what makes for peace. And that's why he preached and taught in the dominant theme of his preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Let's talk about that concept just a minute. The kingdom of God, Tony Campolo is only one of, of many who emphasize that the kingdom of God is not something that we aspire to off in heaven someday. Although it is that, but it is also what we are called to, to create, to help God create, because the kingdom is that realm where God's will is done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Parallel phrases expressing that, that what we are called to be about is in, even in this life to create life where God's will is being done. It's interesting to me, and, and I think a good thing for us to know about our history, that this sacred vision of the kingdom of God has found secular expression in uh, leaders almost of our, of our own time. Teddy Roosevelt, in an early burst of progressive fervor, said, this country will not be a good place for any of us to live until it's a good place for all of us to live. George Bush, the first, uh, uh, the, the first President uh, Bush, in his inaugural address, said today in America, every def any definition of success must include service to others. Those I take to be secular expressions of the, of the dream that we have, that, that our life would be shaped according to the, the will of God, that our life would include the things that make for peace. Because, you know, Jesus, I, the first time I heard this, it took me back, but I've, I couldn't, can't argue with it, don't want to, and I've never been able to forget it. He said, Jesus didn't tell the world to go to church. I thought, that's right. We have, we have a lot about him walking, you know, traveling around Galilee, moving down to, to Judea. He, he never, it, it wasn't a synagogue attendance campaign. Jesus didn't tell the world to go to church. Jesus told the church to go to the world, not to be wrapped up within sacred walls, no matter how beautiful. And when we go to the world, what are we to do? He tried to tell us in the parable of the last judgment. He said, pay attention to the hungry and to the thirsty. Remember the ill clothed and the lonely. Never forget the sick and the prisoner. In the Great Commission, he said, go into the world teaching and baptizing and making disciples of all nations. And in the Great Commandment, he tells us to increase among human beings the love of God and the love of neighbor. To build a world, and as we would say today, to build a city where God's will is done, where we as as citizens and as Christians, where we remember the things that make for peace. 
Nehemiah is also about Jerusalem. Nehemiah was, what, 70, 80, maybe a little bit more years after Jeremiah's letter was written. We think that the exile lasted about 70 years. And Nehemiah uh, gets permission to go home, to go back to Jerusalem. He hears about the sad state of affairs, the city, his beloved city that he never lived in, was, was, uh, was in. And he went, and he went back to, to rebuild the city. And the first, first thing he had to do was to research what was needed. What a concept. Figure out what's needed before you, before you start in, right? And, and the story, if, if you, you know, the, the story that Baxter read, if, if you read about it and try to envision it, here he is not wanting to tell the Jewish leaders what he's up to because he doesn't want to get lobbied for in too many different directions. And so under cover of darkness, he goes out all by himself on a horse, perhaps on, on I, I don't know. It just says on the, on the animal he rode on and he rode around the, the gate, the, the city wall. And in fact, he comes to a point where even the animal cannot pass, but he goes on to see the, the state of affairs. Now in ancient times, the wall was important. It was an important means of defense. It was a, it was a way of, of defining where the city was and of protecting it from its enemies. Strange as it may seem, I remember hearing this story in vacation Bible school as an elementary age student, uh, acting out the rebuilding of the walls. I was on the part of the class that was given the privilege of taking the great big cardboard boxes that, that were made to look like stones and, and building, a, a, uh, uh, building a wall. And, the, and, and I remember that Marianne, not an acquaintance of mine then, who's since become a, a lifelong friend, Marianne was on the group of the class that was designated to be the, the enemy who wanted to come knock down our walls. Have you ever seen fifth graders and sixth graders squabble about a cardboard brick wall? I remember that. I remember a lot of other useless things too, if you'd like to, to ask me late, later on. Uh, for instance, what Ted Williams' average was the day before the last day of the 41 season, but, we'll, but we move on from there. And I better find my place in my notes after I got off on that. Why did they, he says, we need to rebuild the wall so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. He wanted to give the city what it took to work. The city could not work if the wall was not built. Every city has things that need to be done so that the city will work, will function so that the things that make for peace can be practiced in our daily lives. We must be motivated today, not to build a wall around Macon Bibb, but to do those things that make 
for peace, to make the city work. Housing is one, and groups as disparate and, and different as, as Habitat for Humanity and Macon Housing Authority each have ways of approaching that, good for them. Education is another. We know what, what, uh, what we need, and we pray our blessings on those, especially those who, who teach and administer schools in the most difficult areas of, of our, of our, of our uh, county. We know that jobs are needed. Uh, jobs need to be built, and capitalism is our system, but capitalism has to be, has to be created so that it works for, for everyone, for the poor as well as for the, the wealthy. Drugs must be combated. They must be fought by, by police, but also by our convincing others uh, of a vision of life that that really matters, that, can, that is more important than the, than the drug life. The same is true for violence. To make the city work, we must ask, what are we doing for godly living? What are we doing to make it a good place for everyone? Because we are admonished to seek the well-being of our city. Babylon, Jerusalem, and the third city is Macon. How, how are we living out the things that make for peace? Because we live in a city, we live in a time when many in our, all of our cities, not Macon alone, do not feel well at ease. They feel ill at ease. Once we moved around our cities without fear, we moved around feeling that somehow people who were like us dominated and ran things and, and operated the city. In those days, we would close our eyes to the brokenness around us, but we can do that no more. We can ignore that no more. I don't know the, the, the figure today. It's been several years ago. It caught my attention when I, when I heard that in the, in the county schools, there were 750 foster care children children who come into school bearing their own burdens to deal with, add to those the others who come hungry, to those who come having shivered in the cold in the night before with all sorts of emotional hurts from within their homes and from uh, around their homes as well. It was several years ago, Reverend Ron Tony said, we face a generation today which is lawless, godless, and fearless. Jesus bid that we not, did not uh, call the world to come to church, but bid that we might go to the world. Because this is where we live. This is our mission field. So what it is that we have to offer? We have a minister, member of the South Georgia Conference, Stan Harrell, who uh, for a, quite a while w was a prison chaplain. I, I knew him when we were in Leesburg, Georgia, and he was at Lee Correctional. Um, <coughs> later on, he was at Jackson. And he talked about dealing with the prisoners. And he was talking, he said, not about the, the death row prisoners who were there at Jackson, not about the transitional ones, the ones who go to Jackson to be classified and tested and sent out to other to other uh, prisons, but he, what he called the permanent inmates. 
And he said, you know what they know about and what they don't know about? He said, they know about right and wrong. We don't have to teach them that there's a right and wrong. He said, they know about right and wrong. They don't always do what's right, but they know about it. He said, what they don't understand is the body of Christ. They don't understand what the body of Christ means for people to shape us. He said, and he told about one day he was preparing to do a communion service there in the prison. And one of these permanent inmates, one he knew pretty well, walked by and saw Stan, you know, with great juice and with, uh, uh, with bread and doing this, that, the things that we do to prepare for communion. And the, and the inmate said, what on earth are you doing? Stan said he had never had, he never had seen communion. He had never been a part of it. He had never been part of the body of Christ. It is our fellowship that builds us into the people that we can become. But out of that fellowship, our faith moves us forward and moves us out. Here at Mulberry, outreach is a beautiful example. Over the years, you have, have built a wonderful outreach ministry that remembers the words of Jesus, the charge of Jesus to, to, to offer food to the hungry and water to the thirsty and clothing to those who do not, who are not adequately clothed. And in, in those and in every other way, you, you have a way of offering a welcome to the sick and perhaps the uh, prisoner, certainly the lonely. When, when I was assigned to Vineville Church in 2003, I, I saw, I realized that that church had a, a wonderful ministry in the area of Pleasant Hill uh, behind us. Interestingly enough, Helen Henry uh, was instrumental in both of these. Uh, Helen and George moved here, joined Mulberry when, when I was on staff here in the 70s. Uh, it was here that Helen found her, her call to ministry, being involved in, in those early outreach activities here and, and being assigned as associate pastor at, at Vineville, helping to develop the ministry in the, in the community. Jan, for 10 years that we were there, was involved in the tutorial project with third graders at L.H. Williams based on that well-known idea that, that if you study the the third grade reading results in a community, it gives you an idea how many prison cells you need to build down the road. The, the trouble was that middle of third grade was just about too late to rectify the problem. And over these years since then, she and the others who have worked in, in, the, uh, in that ministry have been able to see results and lack of results as names appear on the local news, sometimes in ways that we wish they didn't, and sometimes in ways that, we're, that we can be proud that our people had a hand in, in that. Mulberry and Vineville, but those are not the only ones. The, the community food bank that has been so important, especially in these recent years, Habitat for Humanity, the Methodist Children's Home, Daybreak, uh, where, uh, where they invite people like Creed to sleep out in what was supposed to be cold, but he, he survived remarkably well. We're, we're proud of that. All of these things and others that you could name gain support, not just from our congregation, 
but all across faith lines. What? What are we called to do? I love the phrase that you have developed, sharing the heart of God in the heart of downtown Macon. That's a beautiful way of saying what we are called to do. To build the things that make for peace requires more more than any of us can do ourselves, but requires all that all of us can do as we work together. So let us ask today, does Jesus weep over our city? I pray that we might hear his soft and tender call to seek and work for the welfare of our city.